Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as coordinator of Beyond Festival, typos are my own one. Humans of Twitter is their stories, in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's edition to the Human Please welcome today's edition to the Humans of Twitter list, Robert Howie. Hello, Howie. Hi, Mr. Mom. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. In social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Howie. Always Howie. And inevitably, there is a question of, so Howie, what do you do? Ah, look, I uh, say that I coordinate a festival, which I do. A non-existent festival, but it will exist one day soon. What, what does it mean to coordinate a festival? Basically, my job is everything from working out the nitty-gritty logistics of running a festival to, you know, booking forklifts and arranging where you're going to put fencing and writing risk assessments uh, through to uh, booking artists and doing social media plans and uh, liaising with contractors and governments and anyone and everyone in between and managing a small little team of people that go about their busy little lives making the festival happen. Is this something that you've had a lot of experience doing? Not at all. No, I never, ever planned to be a, an event manager. It just kind of happened accidentally. Um, yeah, no training, no uh, desires and no dreams to be a festival director one day. It just all kind of fell into place and I love it. It's an awesome job to have. What, what then did you train to be? I actually studied TV production um, and specialised in multi-camera television production. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I guess that, you know, it sounds like it has a good connection with festivals and events, but uh, that was 15 years ago that I studied um, and I haven't done anything to do with festivals in between then. <laughs> I, I ended up doing youth work, which is what you do, obviously, when you study television production. <laughs> It it uh it might be because I never found a job in television production, which is why I ended up in youth work. I think that is often why people end up in youth work because they weren't good at what they were trying to do, and that's just where you end up. Are you are you just being self deprecating? You weren't very good, or no, legitimately you weren't very good at it. Uh no, I actually was pretty good at it. Um, in a in a funny kind of way, I'm I'm visually impaired, and a visually impaired cameraman isn't often. Uh, <laughs> desired criteria in a job. So when you apply for yeah. places and you turn up and you've got a wonky head and an eye pointing off to the person behind you, uh, they kind of take a second second step and go, mm, maybe he's not quite right for the job. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm all right swinging a camera around. I can see much better through a camera than I can just walking around. Are you naturally clumsy? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> and how does that how does that impact you? <laughs> well, um, I've broken my same toe twice at home on the same steps oh. uh, about a year apart, just from you know missing the step and being uncoordinated. Mm. Uh, I can't eat a meal without spilling food on myself. Uh, <laughs> if every Monday night we have spaghetti bolognese, my wife cooks, and we have a friend that comes over, the same friend every Monday. 
And every Monday I have to chop up my spaghetti bolognese with a knife and fork like I'm a three-year-old uh, to avoid bolognese being all over my clothing and then getting in trouble for having bolognese on my clothing. So, yeah, you're yeah, pretty clumsy. Always have been. I'd like to blame disability. You know, I can't see what I'm doing, but it's not that. It's just that I'm super uncoordinated. You should see me try and catch a ball. <laughs> how, how does this, the, the eye thing, affect you in your day-to-day life beyond ball catching? <laughs> yeah, thankfully, uh, a lot of my job doesn't involve <laughs> ball catching. Uh, if it did, I'd be absolutely screwed. Um, uh, it doesn't. It, I don't know how it affects me because it's all I know. It's not like I'm a. I walk around going, oh, if only it was like this, because I don't know what like this is. All I know is mm. what I know, um, and all I can see is what I can see. And to me, I can see everything. It's just <laughs> when you're walking beside a road and someone grabs your arm and says, "Don't cross just yet," you realize maybe actually you can't see everything. Uh, but. <laughs> It, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really affect me. I just get on with my life and do my job. I just look a bit odd to other people when my face is pretty much pressed up against my phone screen or my computer screen or whatever it is. But, yeah, it doesn't really affect me. Do you find that people treat you differently? Because I'm not very good at catching balls. Because you have your face pressed up to a screen or, or yeah, or whatever reason. Uh, sometimes. I mean, most people know. I mean, I, I work in a share office and... After a, a few days, the comments of "Gee, you sure you should be that close to your computer?" Uh, <laughs> kind of, kind of die off, um, and you still get the occasional one. You know, I've been working in this. I uh, just work out of an office. You know, basically hot desk to run the festival, um, and I've been working there for well, almost two years out of this same office. And just the other day, I was on my phone reading some text messages, and this guy it was like. Are you, are you sure you need to be that close to your phone? What does your phone smell like? <laughs> are you smelling the text messages? And he had had no idea. And everyone around, I think, was a bit shocked. Was like, um, you know, he's just trying his best to try and read his phone. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I just think it's funny, whatever. But I'm sure people do say things or think it's weird, like you're sitting on a train and there's some guy sniffing his phone. Um. Maybe he's not sniffing it, so maybe you shouldn't laugh at him. Maybe he's me and he's just trying to read his bloody text messages. Yeah. <laughs> what is... I've never sniffed what my is phone, so... in case you're wondering. You've never sniffed your phone? No. I'd take your word for it. <laughs> I'm really tempted to pick up my phone right now and have a sniff, just to see, but <laughs> I don't think I will. Does it smell like ass? Because of taking your shit calls. Yes. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm not going to smell my phone, okay? Were you treated differently as a kid because of uh, your seeing impairment disability? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I went to a really tiny primary school and uh, being the only kid that was kind of different or had a you know a disability, had to sit at the front of the class. Teachers didn't really understand it. In fact, there was one um, primary school that my parents tried to get me into, and the, the primary school said, uh, sorry, we, we don't have room for any kids with disabilities. Um, and it's, it's not a severe disability. I just can't read very well or see very far. Uh, and so other kids, you know, pick up on that and think, oh, who's this weird guy? Why does he always have to sit at the front? Why is his head turned to the side mm-hmm. a bit? Why is you know, all that. And 
in early primary school, I got bagged out a lot. Um, and I think that uh, my, my coping mecha- mechanism was to be a smartass and to try and be the funny yeah. guy rather than, yeah, give people a better reason for laughing at me, uh, for being, you know, quick and silly and whatever, not just for being me. Um, yeah. So by the time I was in senior high school, it was all, I was just the funny guy rather than the eye guy. Uh, but in early years, I was definitely the eye guy. And, it, you know, it was hard sometimes and you sit there in your class and it's exam time and everyone pulls out their exams and then the special teacher comes in to take you to your exam and in front of the whole class pulls out your A3 uh, exam paper on buff coloured paper um, mm. and you've got to, you know, join three desks together to open up your broadsheet to do your multiple choice questions. Um, yeah, that wasn't great. <laughs> Until I got to senior high school and I did a uh, pretty smart, you know, I did three in geography. Mm. I wasn't smart at all. I got the mystery mark in my HSC, but I, um, <laughs> mystery uh, mark. I don't know if they, ha- I don't know if they have the mystery mark in other States, but in New South Wales, the mystery mark was if you got 30 or less, they didn't tell you. So you just get your highest school certificate and your university entry number thing just says 30 or less. Uh, oh, it's actually framed on our wall at home up next to my wife's uh, university degree. Uh, but so I, so I did three in geography because I loved my geography teacher and he was a guy that yeah. was a smart ass too. And, you know, we got on really well and he was actually the teacher that taught me media studies and got me into video stuff. But in geography, you have those broadsheets that are maps, scaled maps, topographic maps, and you've got to work out distances and longitudes and latitudes and all that stuff. But because of yeah. my vision impairment, of course, all my exam papers and textbooks and everything were A3, these things had to be to scale as well. And they're already like oh. A2 or something to start with. So to maintain the scale and to keep it clear for me to be able to use, seriously, you know those wooden meter rulers that were on teachers' blackboards that they yeah. used to draw lines on the boards? That's what they'd give me to measure the distances between uh, <laughs> points on my on my massive, oh. massive broadsheets. Which is was pretty funny. Gosh, that's crazy, man. You know, measure measure the distance between these two points. Other kids are getting out their rulers. Me, I'm packing a day pack and you know, getting a trundle wheel and basically walking the the actual scaled dis- distance. <laughs> Here's a map. We've given it to you as a one to one scale. Yeah, if I just walk out the school gate and walk for twenty seven kilometers, where will I be? Other kids just look on the map. I've got to actually walk 27 kilometres. It's pitch black, cold, I'm hungry. <laughs> Where's Howie going? He'll be back in a week. Yeah, it's all right. He's got his special teacher with him. Special <laughs> teacher? Yeah, that was another thing that I didn't enjoy in school, having the special teacher that came a few mm. times a week to take you out of class. Um, and, you know, you felt like you were the kid that had, not that it's funny to make, fun of kids with mental disabilities but you know there was some sort of Mm. mental illness that he needed this special teacher but really the special teacher's job was just to make sure i could read what was going on and they would scribe stuff in certain classes where they knew the teacher had terrible writing or go and talk to the teacher to make sure my work was enlarged but yeah it was always snickers when the special teacher came to get me from class special teacher is such a (laughs) horrible name for it wow yeah i think the official (laughs) term was itinerant teacher or something I don't know what they're called now. Yeah, but no kids called it that, did they? 
<laughs> no, it's the special teacher. <laughs> oh, how are we time to go out with the special teacher, is it? You got your bib on? <laughs> Gosh. How, how do you describe your experience of family? Um, I, uh, I come from a kind of weird background, um, and most of it's Scottish and Scottish people aren't very good at doing family. Uh, everything's always fine. Nothing is ever talked about. Um, and you just, you just get on with life. Um, and I, yeah, I'm not sure that my family, so I have a a wife and a son and I don't think we're like that. Um, but family is pretty important. I, I make Mm -hmm. sure that I can spend a lot of time at home. Uh, that I can be a, a present father and I think it's really important to hang out with my son and thankfully through many years of underemployment uh, and doing what I do, I've been able to spend a lot of time with my son, which my wife doesn't always enjoy, but uh, <laughs> I enjoy. No, fa- family is pretty important to us and we, we spend a lot of time together, which I think is, is good for all of us. And then we also spend some time apart, which is equally good for us. What do you mean? Could you explain a little more by uh, being a present father? What does that mean to you? Yeah, sometimes I think I'm a bit of a wanker because, like, oh, I'm I'm one of those dads that spends time with their kid, um, and it's just through pure circumstance and the jobs or not jobs that I've had, which have meant that I mm. work from home or my hours are really flexible, uh, or I've had no hours and so I've been at home. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, you see the stereotypical family where the father's out working all hours to support the family and make sure that they've got a comfortable and, and good life but don't actually get to spend that much time with their kids apart from weekends and weekends just become totally sacred. Um, mm. But for us, because we're able to share walking to school together and doing the homework and the playing and the taking to stuff, apart from driving because I can't drive Oscar anywhere, um, mm-hmm. which my son, uh, you know, we don't have that kind of weekends are sacred weekdays. are just work days. It's all kind of flexible, which is, it's awesome. And it's great for Oscar. I mean, imagine if you were growing up and you had both parents around all the time. I don't know many kids that have, uh, been able to have that. And it's, you can see it's great for him and it's, you know, we're pretty blessed and amazed to be able to have this crazy life where we get to spend time together. Did you have that kind of relationship with your parents? Uh, it, it, it changed depending where we live. So we lived in a lot of houses. Um, I'm currently in my 16th house, I think. Um, Why? At the age of 33, which is quite a lot. Um, yeah. yeah, moving countries and then moving house a lot. And it depends on mum and dad's work situation changed a fair few times and that dictated where we lived and how much they had to work and how much time they spent with me. But there was always family with me. I was never kind of palmed off to um, after school care or um, other people's houses or whatever. So if mum or dad weren't around, my nan would come and stay with us uh, during the week or something and my mum was at work or whatever. Dad normally worked a you know, normal nine-to-five job in the city and mum was much more flexible. She's a crazy artist, so... Um, yeah, what she was doing, you didn't really know what she was going to do each day. Sometimes it'd be home painting, sometimes it'd be being a secretary somewhere or whatever. But yeah, I think it was pretty important for them too that that family was 
around and supportive and that I always had both parents as much as possible growing up. Um, and the, there wasn't kind of working just to survive. There was working so that we could hang out together. Yeah. Did that investment in you as a child play into your decision to get involved in youth work? <laughs> no, no. Youth work was 100% accidental. Uh, you know, I was studying TV production and, and loving it. Mm. Uh, and a friend of mine just worked at the local youth drop-in center and called me up one day and said, look, we need someone to come because we can't legally open unless we've got two people here. Can you come <laughs> and just sit in the corner so that we can open? Uh, and I said, yeah, look, I'll come, but I'm not going to do anything in the kitchen and I'm not going to talk to young people. I mean, I was, I was 19, so I was pretty young myself yeah. and just, you know, I was too important and too cool to hang out with ah. dumb young people. So I said, yeah, look, I'll come, I'll come and help you in your stupid cafe, but I'm not going to talk to anyone and I'll just be here there so you can open the door. And then as soon as we close the door, I'm off. Uh, anyway, whatever. I don't want to talk about it. Loved it. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it and ended up, you know, volunteering there one afternoon a week, then two afternoon a week, then three afternoons a week. After a few years, I actually went into the kitchen, um, you know, to make the wedges or the milkshakes or whatever the kids were ordering and just found that I think being a smart ass, uh, helped me relate to young people a lot because I wasn't kind of the authoritarian or the whatever. I was just, I was just a, a young person that hadn't grown up properly. Uh, and learn how to be an adult. So I was silly and irreverent and all that, which I think kind of attracted young people. And we would often get on really well together and just yeah, ended up really enjoying doing youth work and getting more and more involved in the youth cafe and then other youth programs with the organization and then eventually working for the organization full time for about seven years, um, doing all wow. sorts of stuff. Yeah. And it was just yeah, all purely accidental and not planned and, you know, starting with this, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be part of this. I'll come with these conditions and then ending up absolutely loving it and spending, you know, a good 10 years just hanging out with young people. Um, once with that organization, and then another with an overseas and development organization, you know, engaging young people in global poverty. Um, yeah, but all totally accidental. But yeah, not, not because of my parents. Not that they wouldn't have had any, there would have been influences in some of the decisions I made and things that I did during that time, but getting into that mm -hmm. was purely accidental. What did you, what was a key learning for you uh, from working with, with young people? A key learning? Mm. Uh, well, one, one thing that I found really scary was how much young people can look up to you. Uh, and it kind of dawned on me once uh, on a bus trip, a two-week bus trip with a bunch of young people that were, you know, at-risk young people and some of them were pretty full-on. Um, and it was, you know, one of those, you know, journeys that will change your life kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was probably the third or fourth last day of the trip. So we spent two weeks in a bus together and, felt and experienced every emotion possible to a young person and to a tired leader. Um, and I just, I hit this moment where I was like, Oh my goodness, these kids are looking up to me. I don't want that responsibility. That's too much. You know, they're copying me, mimic, mimicking me and asking for help and advice. I'm like, I'm just, 
I'm just Howie. I'm just me. I, I, I can't have handle that responsibility. Uh, and I freaked out and, and lost my temper and went a bit crazy to the main leader guy who was kind of running the trip and said, I, I can't handle it. I can't do it. I'm out. Um, you know, I, I don't want young people looking up to me and being like me and all that. Um, but then I, I think that turned into a, it's okay to be myself and people looking up to that is fine. I mean, all the people that I admire aren't inspirational world leaders or, you know, famous people. They're just mm-hmm. committed people who are living life uh, in a way that is um, loving and caring and being themselves, basically. Uh, and if I can do that, I think that's that's pretty great if I can do that for other people as well. Um, not that I want to be seen as a mentor or a, any of that sort of crap. Um, but I think, yeah, just just being yourself. So, you know, I'm, I'm silly and a smart ass and all that. And that just being me has been really helpful um, in other relationships, in the way that I manage teams and the way that I run events now and uh, the way that I parent too, probably, I think. Um, just being myself. Uh which has has come from a process of processing. I don't want to be myself and I don't want other people to see who I am and be who I am to a place of actually being myself is pretty important. And if other people can be themselves too, that's also awesome. And maybe I can be part of helping that happen. How, how do you reconcile that? I mean, we are surrounded by messages that tell us that we shouldn't be comfortable in our skin, that there is always a better you yet you seem to be, from what you've just said, entirely comfortable in your skin. How do, how do you get to that point? I'm not entirely com- comfortable. Um, there's, you know, often things where I think I'm inadequate or I'm not the right person to do this or, you know, I look mm. like an idiot because I'm sniffing my phone on a train. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, yeah, I don't... It's a tough question. Damn you and your tough questions. Also, I think it's just part of my nature that I'm pretty relaxed and easygoing and things just kind of happen. Um, You know, I'm not stressed about what I wear or any of that stuff because it's just a waste of time (laughs) to me. I'm like, I don't really care. I just want to be comfortable. That's why I look like I'm a 1990s skateboarder, but I'm in my mid-30s and I'm living in 2015, you know, I wear state <laughs> shoes and shorts and a cap and a T-shirt uh, with some sort of witty slogan that I think is the funniest shirt I've ever seen and then you walk around and you see that everyone else has got the same shirt. Um, but, I, yeah, just you get to a point where you don't care. You just think, well, I'm just going to be comfortable and whatever. I don't care if my things aren't brand name. I'll even wear Kmart stuff these days, which I wouldn't no way near if I was a little youngster. Needs to be Billabong, not Adidas. Not where I came from. Boy, oh boy, I got an Adidas backpack for Christmas once. It was the worst Christmas I've ever had. Actually, it was the same Christmas that my parents gave me a bum bag. Oh, yes, <laughs> just not a brand name one or nothing. You know, not like a gangster one where I could go and hang out outside shopping centres. It was just a bum bag, just a fluoro green bum bag. And they thought that would be a good Christmas present for me. It's like it's like the Crocs of the eighties. <laughs> 
What made Billabong the aspirational brand to have? Uh, everyone at school had those square Billabong backpacks and, uh, yeah. you know, that's what you, you had to have. You had to go to the surf shop. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a famous surf shop in our little town. And uh, Did you live anywhere near the, the ocean? Why is that relevant? Oh, it's relevant <laughs> because I want to understand... No, no. The placement of this surf shop in culture for you guys at school. <laughs> no, it's the upper north shore of Sydney. We don't go to the ocean. Okay, so close yeah. enough. We might get our feet sandy or something. But it's not like you're in, in like outback New South Wales at the surf shop. No, no. No, it wasn't one of those country town surf shops where you wonder why the hell it's there. Yeah. No. No, I wasn't in Dubbo. It was in the upper north shore. <laughs> we call it the upper north shore. Really, it's the bottom of the central coast. <laughs> of that part of the upper, upper North Shore. Yeah. yeah, it's so upper that it's not up anymore. It's the, it's the bottom of the next bit. Um, <laughs> what challenges me? At the moment, uh, it's, it's problem-solving issues that you didn't plan for, uh, which I quite enjoy doing. When you run events, you can plan for so much stuff and then you just get a phone call out of the blue saying, um... Yeah, that, that thing that you wanted to do, we can't do it, but we found this replacement that'll cost you $25,000. So do you want to book that in now? Uh, and you just kind of think, um, yeah, no, I don't have $25,000 because the thing that we were going to do was free and that's what we'd budgeted <laughs> for. So I'll get back to you about locking in that $25,000 contract you now want to sign with us. Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of my job is basically putting out little fires and uh solving problems on the go, which I, I quite enjoy doing. I, lo- I need to use my brain. I, I don't like just sitting around doing nothing. Um, and I like problem solving, unless it's mathematical. I hate maths. Maths is stupid. Uh, <laughs> but if it's, if it's yeah, problem solving, logistical issue about how we're going to resolve something, I, I really love the challenge of that. Uh, and I think also in this, this role of this festival that I'm working on now, the whole thing is quite challenging because it hasn't been done before and we're, attempting all these new things and scary things. And it's really exciting being part of the brainstorming and the, the scheming and the thinking. And even it's even exciting, you know, the knockbacks and the, the failures because it makes go, Oh, what else can we do? How else can we do this? Um, and I, I, yeah, I really enjoy that. I think I'm a bit funny cause I'm, I really love the logistical detail stuff, but I like the big picture stuff as well. And I'm not excellent at both, but I'm not terrible at either. Um, so, you know, you get yeah. those big picture people that you work for that, you know, couldn't organize something that needs organizing. I'm also very good <laughs> at analogies. Uh, and then you get the people who are the doers that kind of actions and, and make stuff happen. So you've got the dreamers and the doers. Um, and if you're a doer, dreamers drive you mad because they have these big schemes and you think that's not possible. Uh, and mm. if you're a dreamer, you think the detailed people are annoying because they're just not getting the big picture. Uh, and I, I kind of cross over a bit between the two rather than being skilled at both. Um, and I, yeah, I really enjoy the creative stuff too. The, the design things and the, you know, playing with color and images mm. and, and all that. My, um, my perfect day is probably spending a day by myself just wandering around the city taking photos or, you know, little video shoots or something. Um, 
just yeah getting a bit of creative space is that about gathering ideas to store for later or is it about processing the information in your head at the time or what what's that walk about uh, well, it doesn't happen as much these days as I'd like to, um, just because of family and work and different life. But it's, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess it's probably a bit of a debrief with yourself. You know, you can just go and spend some time by yourself, but also be creative at the same time. Um, uh, and it's it's awesome not having any pressure. So when you're by yourself, you know, I could spend an hour setting up a photo and then the photo doesn't work and you're like, yeah, that was pretty awesome. Mm. I just spent an hour setting up that photo. Didn't work. Oh, well. Now I'll go spend an hour lying <sighs> down on the ground over here and that'll be just as awesome. Um, and then sometimes you get a good photo and often you don't because uh, you think you're a much better photographer than you actually are. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I th- think it's it's nice to have some time just to process stuff. Um, my life is pretty hectic and managing events there's so many different aspects and things happening at once and it's not kind of a when this task is finished you move on to the next task there's 27 tasks happening at once and they've all got different start and finish times and different amounts of energy and different amounts of people involved uh so sometimes yeah you just need a bit of space to do nothing uh or do something that's got nothing to do with that um and and for me that's often photography even just you know spending time with my phone taking photos or whatever uh, and travel. I love travel and trains. Mm. And it's probably embarrassing to admit that I like trains. Let's pretend I didn't say that. It's just you and me. <laughs> That's what I've heard about your podcast. <laughs> What's the most dangerous thing you've done? I don't think I want to say what the most dangerous thing I've ever done is because uh, it involves my youth and uh, moving trains. Um Yep. No, not going to tell you. What's the second most dangerous thing you've ever done? <laughs> second most dangerous thing I've ever done. The only thing that springs to mind right now is uh, surfing behind a car on a for sale sign. Um, <laughs> awesome. You know, a rope tied to the back of a car and you just stand on a for sale sign and get slid along the road. Mm. Um, that's probably pretty dangerous. It was fun. I also uh, went for a long trip once. Uh, I was actually on a youth group trip when I was a young boy. Uh, and I spent the whole time in the boot of this car going along the freeway. Just for, It was probably more stupid than dangerous. But they can, they can cross over quite well, can't they? Very, very easily. Or did you want me to say something like, being a father or, you know, those sorts of things? Or did you, did you want stupid things? Because I've done a lot of stupid things. <laughs> I can imagine. What's the stupid thing you've done? Well, surfing on a for sale sign behind a car is pretty <laughs> bloody stupid. <laughs> it depends on where you're doing that. Well, it was on a mainish road. It's, that's, that's silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, silly. Do you not want to say the most dangerous thing because it might haunt you because it was highly illegal or because you look at it with regret? 
Oh, Mike, look, I think it's just not worth um, telling people about because then other people might have the same idea and it was a really stupid thing to do. Uh, it was dangerous and, yeah, it's it's kind of like when Andrew Bolt talks, um, you just you don't want to give him any more airtime. You know, it's it's so mm. ridiculous and stupid. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I feel about that. What's your favourite takeaway food choice? I love burgers. I live for burgers. Mm. So uh, BuzzFeed put out an article last year, I think, of the 25 best burgers in Australia, and I'm, I'm working my way through mm-hmm. the list. But I, I love, love burgers. And there's some. What is it about burgers? It's it's the meat and the bread and the cheese and the onion. Not the beetroot. What kind of an idiot puts beetroot on a burger? Uh, I, was, yeah. I don't know why it is. I just love burgers so much. In fact, I really want a burger right now. Often, pretty much every day, at, at lunchtime, I have the struggle of what am I going to have, uh, and where I work, there's this little takeaway shop that does a $7.50 combo with a burger, chips, and a can. Um, and pretty much every day, I think to myself, yeah, I reckon it's burger day. <laughs> Obviously, I don't have it every day, especially not if my wife is listening to this. I, uh, yeah, very rarely mm. have it, of course. Uh, mm. But no, $7.50 for a burger, chips, and a Coke. doesn't matter how bad it tastes. That's awesome. What's in your ideal burger? What's your perfect burger? Perfect burger. Uh, it, it changes. At the moment, I think lamb burgers are my favorite. So you get the lamb and the tzatziki and maybe a bit of tabbouleh, uh, cheese, so the fancy burgers, or just a really good cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. And always no beetroot and no mayonnaise. But I'll, I'll, I'll travel the world to have a burger. If, if I had the means, I'd go on a world burger run. I've, I've discovered, yeah, if you're wondering, right. if you want the secret to the best burger in Australia, uh, I'm pretty sure nothing's topped it so far, is Missy Moo's, which is a, a burger shop in uh, Fremantle, Western Australia, and it's run by a family who also run a butchery, and the burgers oh. are amazing. Amazing. Best burger I've ever had in my life. That butchery connection sounds like it, it just raises it to the next level. Yeah, they know their meat. And it's it's a quirky little place where they're all all the burgers are named after nursery rhymes. Instead of getting a number, you just get a plastic toy that they've found from a local op shop, I think, and they just put it in the middle of your yeah. table. And somehow remember what your order is by looking at the plastic plane with the broken red propeller and go, oh, yes, <laughs> they ordered the Bo Peep and the Little Miss Riding Hood or whatever the hell they ordered. Um yeah, amazing place. Missy Moo's. I don't have any connection with them. Just know that they've got amazing burgers and I ate them. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Well, I'm going to sniff my phone, I reckon, in the next 12 months. I'm committed to it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. It's going to take a while because who wants to sniff their phone? You could start a movement. <laughs> the phone sniffers. That would actually help me feel not so out of place on trains and stuff. If everyone, anyone who's listening to this, if you're ever on a train and you think you see me, you just see a guy that looks like they're sniffing their phone, get out your phone and sniff it as well. Just just help me fit in a bit, would you, please? <laughs> uh, look, in the next 12 months, I I really, really hope that this festival 
happens and works and goes well. Um, uh, you know, we're attempting something that's hopefully going to help reshape and change and be a tiny part in shifting our national conversation away from being negative and fear-mongering to more inclusive and compassionate kind of direction. And I'd, I would love for it to have, have worked and to be part of something like that would be amazing. I would love to, in 12 months' time to look back and go, wow, we we did it. Um, you know, together with thousands of people, we, we gathered together and we were able to make a bit of a difference in this beautiful country. And, I, you know, every day I'd like to be a better husband and a better father as well. Mm. That's a that's a daily daily wish and desire, which I often fail on. Well, thank you, Howie. It's, it's very generous of you sharing what you have, and, and please know that you are very important and highly valued, uh, in, in not only for sharing that, but just in who you are. Um, it's, it's great to have this chance to chat with you. Thank you, Mr. Malk. And obviously, little plug, beyondfestival.com.au, do it. Do it. Clearly, you're on Twitter. Do you have any other social uh, media accounts that you want to admit to? <laughs> on Twitter? Like, I've, I've been on Twitter since the start. I uh, started using Twitter when it was text messages um, and just a web-based thing because smartphones didn't exist. And me and a few friends used to use it for communicating with each other. So I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with Twitter. I've, I've got like 14 followers, so I'm, I'm not very popular on it, but I love it. I'm addicted <laughs> to it. Uh no, I'm on Twitter. I'm on uh, Facebook, but my Facebook's private because I uh, put up photos of my rash. No, I just um, keep my Facebook private. Um, yeah, I'm basically on Twitter, LinkedIn, but who wants to use that because it's boring as hell? And uh, that's about it. I blogged for a while. For a while, I mean 10 years. And then I stopped because I realized I was probably the only person reading it. Did you want more people to read it? Uh, sometimes uh, I used to check my stats pretty often. Look, no, more than me read it. My mum read it too. Um, and some of my friends read it. I'm not very good at the typing uh, and a lot of typos and spelling mistakes and whatever. So it was pretty painful reading for people. And a lot of it was just poo jokes or stories about poo. So it's pretty, pretty niche <laughs> blogging market that. But you cornered that market, didn't you? Oh, I cornered it regularly. That's a little <laughs> little poo joke for you there. <laughs> You're a bit of comedy fiver for you. Yeah, look better up. This has been humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at the underscore Howie is indeed human. Thank you. I'm glad I passed the test. It's a gift. I offer it freely. You can choose to accept it or pass it away. Has has anyone ever not passed? Have you gone to the end of the year and went, wow, that person is really messed up. I'm not sure they're a human. Well, doesn't that make them more human? Don't don't get all philosophical with me. <laughs> you jerk. Don't, don't, don't forget I got 30 or less in my HSC. 30 or less. Could have been one. Could have been 29. No one will ever mm. know. Well, if, if, I, if you work at the board of studies, please, please tell me. I'd, I'd love to know what I got. <laughs> yes, if you do. Well, I heard a rumor that uh, kids with disabilities get their marks bumped up a bit. So if my mark was bumped up a bit and I still got their thirty or less, I'd, just, I'd love to know what it actually was.